Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. One of the questions that many Christians struggle with is this. What does God expect of me? Now, there's lots of different ways this question could go because there's lots of different uh, contexts, if you will, for which we ask this question. What does God want me to do in this situation? What does God want me to do in ministry or in mission? Uh, What does God want me to do in the life of my brother or my sister in Christ? There's lots of different ways in which we might ask, what does God expect of us? But What I want to ask is this, when it comes to the way we live our lives, when it comes to our obedience or disobedience to God, when it comes to uh, this this question of morality, this question of, of cohering with the teachings of Scripture, what does God call us to? What exactly is expected of us? And there's lots of misrepresentations within the Christian world, which is why I think it's important for us to look at this question together today from the text of Scripture. I'm going to give you two major misrepresentations. You've probably been exposed in some way, shape, or form to both of them, and you'll see why perhaps this question is one that needs a little clarification. Here's the first misrepresentation. God has no expectations. You're forgiven. Live however you want. Now, maybe there's only a few people in our world that are bold enough to actually say those words. But I think that there's a large percentage of Christians, at least in our country, who live as though this misrepresentation is true and say something to this effect. You're not, you don't earn your salvation. You're saved by grace through faith. You went up for that altar call. You're good, one and done, saved, and you don't have to worry about it again. It doesn't really matter what you do for the rest of your life. Live however you want. God forgives you. This is that first misrepresentation, and I have to say, I see this in every church I've ever been a part of. I see this in every community in which I've ever lived. This this misrepresentation is very prominent in American Christianity. There's also the other side of the coin, if you will. Here's misrepresentation number two. The better you do at meeting God's expectations, the happier he will be with you, the more value you have, perhaps the more God will love you, the more he'll forgive you of the bad things you've done in your past. Man, I think that that last part, so many Christians believe, whether or not they'd ever articulate those words. But when you look, when you hear some things or see what they do, it's almost like they're trying to do good in order to erase the bad, as if Jesus hasn't already erased the bad. And so there's this other misrepresentation. That perhaps we have to be super good. We have to do everything right. We have to to put on that extra effort because otherwise God is not going to accept me. And that is a misrepresentation as well. Misrepresentation means different from the truth, right? And so neither one of these two thoughts is what we see in Scripture. Despite how many Christians tend to believe this or live out life as if they believe this. 
So if these are misrepresentations, that God has no expectations, live however you want, or that God is going to somehow be love you more, do more for you, bless you more if you do these things, if those are misrepresentations, so what is the truth? What does the Bible actually teach in terms of what God expects of us? And so I want to take a look at what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 together with this in mind. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me. 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It'll be right after Colossians and right before 2 Thessalonians. And for those of you who do not have a Bible with you, it will also be up on the screen. And Jake, I'm going to ask that you roll with me today. Thank you for being back there. I just put the passage, so as I mentioned a verse, just jump to it. And everybody will give you grace. But I want to read the whole thing in its entirety first, so bear with me with this. If you have your Bibles, please follow along. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Paul's writing, he says, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lusts like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for, another, for one another, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. All right. Well, I want to kind of take a look, break down this passage, and there's several observations I'm making, especially when it comes down to this question of what does God expect of us? What are his expectations for how we live our lives? And perhaps the first one that comes to me right out of the very first part of the first verse is this, that how we live either pleases or displeases God. That may seem obvious. That may even seem to play into one of our misrepresentations I mentioned earlier, but let me go ahead and clarify this for just a minute. Understand that Paul is in no way advocating this, that the way we live determines whether or not God loves you. God loves you regardless of how obedient or disobedient you are to these particular things. God will not remove your salvation or somehow add more salvation to you. 
You do not have, you do not become, you do not go on his favorites list or end up on that other list, depending on how well or how poorly your life coheres to these things. But that's not to say that it doesn't please your heavenly father when you do as he has called you to do, or that it does not displease him when you do not live according to how you, he calls you to. Many of us, if not all of us in this room, all right, many of us, I know my boys don't, many of us have children. And I would really hope, but I would also trust that all of us loved our children, love our children when they are doing great and obeying what we say, and even when they're disobeying what we say. Our love is never in question. We never love them more because they do a better job of following the rules. We never love them less because they do a poor job of following the rules. That's not what the argument is about. But how many of us as parents and grandparents have been especially pleased at those times when our children obey what we have said? How many of us are displeased, are frustrated, even angry, and rightfully so, when our children do not obey? And the reason for that is not because we want to be the boss and we want to get our way, but because we establish rules, we establish guidelines for their benefit, for the benefit of others, either that they're in relationship with now or that they'll engage with as they become adults and live their lives. Right? And the way they cohere to this instruction, to the way that we're raising them, brings us glory in the sense, not that it glorifies us, but it, it, it makes us feel like we have done a good job, we have been successful, we are replicating the good things that we hold to in our children, and think of it this way, God calls us to live this way for our good, for the good of those around us and that he might be glorified as God by us doing so. And so he says right in verse one, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. And so we need to, just as the the Thessalonians lived, we need to understand that God calls us to such a way of living. And as we do so, we're literally bringing pleasure to our heavenly Father. He goes on to the same verse to bring up this next thing, that we are to identify what we're doing well and do it more. You know, Paul's Paul's quick to call out these churches when they're doing things wrong, but he's also good to affirm them when they do things well. But one thing you don't see in Scripture is this. You've done this well, good job, you don't have to do anything else. Instead, those things that we do well in, or those things we see in Scripture, these churches, these believers who do things well, they're to do them all the more. They're to continue in that vein. And so the second observation is that. Identify what you're doing well and do it more. Again, in verse 1, we see, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you on how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. In fact, an interesting observation of this passage is that Paul uses this idea of, of doing what you're doing well more and more. He does it again later on in our passage in verses 9 and 10. He says, now about your love for one another. 
We do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And so when it came to obeying the instructions that Paul and the other apostles had given to them, and when it comes to the task of loving one another, even other brothers and sisters who are part of the larger family of God and other churches, this church excelled in both of those things. But instead of checking a box, Paul said, take where you're at right now in these things, these things you're doing well in, and amplify them even more. And so, friends, I ask you, what are the things that we're doing well? You know, we don't like to think about the things we do poorly, even though we're called to, but there's a place for celebrating the things that we do really well. And I think that as a church, there are things that we do very well. I think that in our own individual walks with the Lord, there are things that we do very well. That if Paul was writing to you, or Jesus came to give you a report card, there are things where you'd score pretty highly in. And it brings him pleasure. And so what are those things in your life? Or what are those things in the life of our church? And how can we amplify them even more? How can we do so more and more? Here's my third observation that comes from the text. That all of this question of how we are to live, what is God's expectation? What do we do well? And what are those growth areas in our life? All of them he seats them all in this, that it is God's will for believers to be sanctified. We see this in verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. And that's not just for the believers in Thessalonica. That's for all believers for all times. We are called to be sanctified. So that begs the question, what on earth are we talking about when we see sanctification? In fact, sanctif sanctification is not a word that we typically use outside of the walls of the church. And even in the walls of the church, it's not one we talk about every Sunday. So what does it mean to be sanctified? Esther brought up a good uh, definition for it this morning. I'm going to share it with you. To be set apart. From what? We are called by God to be set apart from our sin, from worldliness, from our old self, from all the things that displease God. And we are to be set apart unto God. Holiness, the life he calls us to, living lives that please him. So we're set apart from sin and we're set apart unto God. This is God's will for us. And I want to explain this because Here's one of the things that I think we tend to imagine that this process of sanctification, of being set apart from sin and being set apart unto God is somehow on autopilot. Or somehow this is a passive process for us and God just does that God thing whereby he sanctifies us and we don't have to worry about it. But that's not actually what scripture teaches. Because the funny thing is, here in this passage is one of many examples. Paul is saying it is God's will for you to be sanctified. Now he gives instruction. Well, if there's instruction tied to sanctification, then it's not a passive process. In fact, there is a responsibility 
for all believers in this process of sanctification. So let's talk about what this means to be set apart from sin and set apart unto God, and it's not this passive process. Let me tell you why perhaps people think it is a passive process. Because you and me, we don't have the ability to sanctify ourselves. We just don't have that power. Have you ever tried to break a really bad habit? Have you ever tried to overcome a sin that really had a hold of you by yourself? How successful were you at it? I know many things that just in my life, they were the stumbling block that I tripped over over and over again. And I had every clever plan that I could think of to stop doing that. And somehow, I just did not have the power. In fact, have you ever, raise your hand if you've ever been on a diet. Sorry, that might have been a bad thing to ask people to raise their hands for. We're family here. It's okay. I have been on a diet constantly. Let me give you my experience. Don't eat that. Boy, that never seemed as tempting as it does right now. You know, I've done well on a diet for a day. And then all of a sudden, that thing that you pass in the grocery store or at the bakery, you know, and you think, oh, that looks nice, and you don't think about it. Now you've been on a diet for 24 hours, and you have to have it. <laughs> and then you resist, and later on, you're home. It's nowhere near you. You can't see it. You can't smell it. Nobody's talking about it, but you're thinking about it. <laughs> this is what it's like when you try to sanctify yourself. This is what it's like when you try to break those patterns of sin in your own life, on your own power. You can't do it. You don't have the capacity. So does that let us off the hook? Is that one of those misrepresentations? God has no expectations. You can't fix yourself anyway. Just live however you want. No. But God has provided us with the capacity to overcome sin, sinful patterns, even addictions in our life, not by our own power, but by the power of God through the Holy Spirit who abides with all believers. He, the Holy Spirit, is the, is the agent of sanctification. He's the one who does the work of transforming our hearts and our minds. He's the one who actively leads every time a crossroads comes up in our life where I could choose my way or God's way. The Holy Spirit says, um, Kevin, this way, this way, and then it's my job to listen. He's the one who, as we look back in our past, and we're like, wow, that, I used to trip up over that thing, over that thing, over that thing. I remember having an attitude every time I spoke to that person. I remember not being able to forgive that person. I remember, and all of a sudden, it's like, wow, I don't do those things anymore. The Holy Spirit is the one who gave us the victories in each of those areas, setting us apart from sin, setting us apart unto God. And so it's easy to think perhaps this is passive for us. He's the big guy. He's the one who does the work. But here's the thing. Have there been areas in your life that God just hasn't seemed to give you victory in? That you haven't grown in? Well, here's the thing. We have a role to play as well. And it's really a role of surrender. It's a role of not my way, but your way. Not my will, but your will. 
And I shared this with the Sunday school class, and this is a good pattern. I didn't invent this. This was modeled for me, and it's been one of the strongest uh, tools in my tool belt, if you will, in terms of a posture toward God in this process of sanctification. And it's this. Why not start every single day with a prayer to God? Lord, I know that this, this, and this are stumbling blocks I trip on almost every day. And I need your help to overcome them. I know that as I go through my day, there will be those crossroads. And sometimes I don't even stop to think. I just react and choose my way over the way you would have me go. Lord, when those moments come, would you cause me to stop and hear your voice, to remember your word, to know which way to go? And would you give me the strength, the capacity to choose your way, despite my will wanting to take me in a different direction? And you know, if you repeat that prayer over and over throughout the day, if you recognize those crossroads, if you give glory to God for the victories, this will become a natural part of your life. And that journey of sanctification, being set apart from sin, being set apart unto God, that'll be something you see happening all the time. In fact, God will shine a light in some areas where you didn't even know there was a problem. And those things that have been stumbling blocks for so long somehow will become victories in your life because God is faithful. And as our passage says today, it is God's will. He desires this. This is what he wants for you to be sanctified. He goes on. He says, it is God's will, verses three through five. It is God's will that you should be sanctified and that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Again, we have a role, right? Just as the, Thess the Thessalonians did, to avoid, to learn, to control. We have to be desiring of sanctification, and the Spirit is the one who makes it happen. Here's our next observation from our text. The Lord will punish will punish Christians. Hold on. Wait a second. I, that's not what I heard. I heard Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I don't have to worry about it. There is no punishment. What do you mean? The Lord will punish Christians for sins against each other or sins in this vein? Let's read what the text says. We don't want to hear what Kevin says. What does the Bible say? 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 6. Let's understand this. It is God's will that you should be sanctified that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. This might challenge your theology. This might not be the news of, that, that you hear often. So what does this mean? Well, I'll give you two possible ways in which this can happen that Scripture actually talks about. Okay? First of all, let's start with this before we get into that. Are we in danger of standing before God one day and not being welcomed into eternity with him? because of sin that we commit here on the earth now? Can we sin one too many times 
And it's the straw that broke the camel's back and lost us our salvation. No. Scripture speaks in numerous places, in numerous ways, that that's not the case. And so we know that's not what Paul's talking about here. But that doesn't mean that there aren't rewards and punishments in the afterlife. And it doesn't mean that God won't discipline us as his children now. Think about this for a second. We talked about parents and children earlier, and we take great pleasure when our children obey us, and we get frustrated, and we have displeasure when they don't obey us. And what do we do to train them to live in such a way that is the right way we punish them? Not because we're mean, but because we want to discipline them, and we want them to learn and to grow and to do better and the Bible's clear about that as well, that God does love us as a father, and thereby he disciplines us to train us up. And so that's one of the possible outcomes here of our living in a way where our we're not being sanctified, we're living in sin, we're not being obedient to God, we're not glorifying him, we're hurting ourselves, and we're hurting our Christian witness to other people. God might discipline us, whereby we do better. And things are made better as a result. But there's also places in Scripture that talk about rewards in heaven. And we are going to have to stand before God one day and give an account of how we lived, how we built on the foundation of Christ, what we did with the salvation that he's given to us. And so, yeah, we're going to have to give an account for that. And what that looks like, I don't know. But we know that it's going to happen. And so God calls us to live a certain way. Your, sac- your, sanctif- your, I'm sorry, your salvation is not in jeopardy. But the scriptures are clear that the Lord will punish us for sins against each other and, and not doing the things he called us to. I said against each other. Here's what I want to draw our attention to here as well. Um, a lot of times we can draw others into sin. Sin often feels like a personal thing. But how often do we model or teach or bring other people in to the bad things of life? In this particular church, one of the things that tripped them up is sexual immorality. How do I know? Because that's what Paul addresses here. That's their particular burden, their particular sin. And actually, Laura brought up a good, a good observation that because of the, the pagan worship, the fertility gods, and the various practices that go along with with. Uh, getting the fertility gods on your side, sexual immorality was part and parcel of the culture that the Thessalonians lived in, right? So that was the sin that they tripped up over. But all of the, but you could take that out and put another sin is, what is it that, that you trip over? What is it that us as a church continually trip over? If Paul was writing this letter to the church at Belglade, what would be put in here? But here's what he says, right? It is God's will that you should be sanctified, verse 3 and following, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. I want to pause there for a second. So what he's saying is this. This is sanctification. He's saying you're not to live this way like the pagans. Who's he writing to? People who came out of paganism. Former pagans. You're not to live this way like you used to live. You're to be set apart from that and set apart unto God, right? And that in this matter, verse 6, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. 
And so in this particular church, you have to imagine that the sexual immorality that went on in the church was one in which they in some way harmed one another, lured one another into it, or, or whatever it is that they did that Paul knew about and was addressing here. And the same is true for us, that regardless of what sin it is that we personally struggle with, or we as a church struggle with, it becomes very easy to sin against a brother or sister in Christ or to invite a brother or sister in Christ into an attitude, an idea, or an action, or put a thought in their head that in some way entices them to sin against God and others. And so we need to be mindful of that. And it's right after that part of that sentence that he goes on to, the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. And I do believe that God will punish those who lead others astray, those who harm others. There's you think about even the responsibility for teachers. Why is more responsibility on them? Because it's not just about what they believe or what they profess, but it's what they lead other people to believe. Why are there such stringent punishments for false teachers, false prophets? Because we have a responsibility one to another. And we have to remember that as much as the Lord loves us, he will punish Christians for sins against each other. God calls us to live a holy set apart life. We see that in verse 7. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. I'm going to argue that to live a holy life, we need to live an intentional life. It is very easy to go with the flow in our culture, in our society. You know, back in the day, maybe in these ancient days that we were reading about here, there's community, there's always community, but there's not the same influences that you and I have to contend with. Whether that's listening to the radio, whether that's watching TV, whether that's following your newsfeed on Facebook or Instagram or one of those other things, uh, or, or meeting up in social spaces where we have more of them than they did back then, we are constantly being influenced by the culture that's all around us. And if we don't live intentionally, we get caught up with the culture and live and think the same way they do. And so we need to be intentional. God calls us to be set apart from sin, set apart from worldliness, set apart from our old selves, and set apart unto him. And the more we are set apart from those things, the more capacity we have to be set apart unto God. And that takes intentionality. That takes focus on the transforming of our minds, the renewing of our minds by God's word. That takes intentional time of developing that life with Jesus that we've been called to. That takes intentional time of digging in together as brothers and sisters in Christ and walking through discipleship and sanctification together. This is, these are the gifts of God to help us to live an intentional life because he has called us to be set apart. He has called us to a holy life. Another observation we see in our text is that rejecting God's moral will is a rejection of the God who gave the command, of the God who has the will. And I don't think we often think of it this way, right? I know I didn't think of it this way when I was disobeying my parents as a kid to get away with something. I wasn't thinking that by doing that, it's in essence a slap in the face of my mother or father. By pulling one over on them, by doing something under the radar, I got my way. I got my will. 
And I didn't think of it this way, but every time I did that, I was disrespecting my mother or my father. Whether they found out about it or didn't, I was disrespecting them. And a rejection of what God has called us to in obedience is a rejection of God. It's disrespect to the God who has done so much for us, given us so much, and that's just the way it is. He says in verse 8, Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. And so Paul's writing to the Thessalonians. He's saying, if you disregard what I'm saying, you're not disregarding me. I'm just the messenger. The message comes from God, right? And the same is true for us when we read the scriptures. It's not some ancient old guy wrote something. And we're, if we don't listen, then we're, we're disrespecting Paul. No, we're disrespecting the God who commanded, who inspired Paul to write it. And I love here at the end of verse 8, it gives us, the other side, it gives us another piece of the puzzle. He says, therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Why is that relevant? Because it's the Holy Spirit who gives you the capacity to overcome these patterns of sin, to be set apart from sin and unto God, who is the agent of our sanctification. In the same passage where he says, it is God's will that you be sanctified, a rejection of what God calls us to is a rejection of the one who gives us the very capacity to do what he's called us to. You know, I have worked for people in my life who have given me hard tasks, but tasks I should be able to do, and people who gave me tasks that there was no way to succeed at. In fact, I remember working for a company once where they had a bonus structure, and if you hit the tiers of the bonus, you get the bonus. And every month, I would hit the bonus tiers. I'd hit the top one. And you know what they did every time? They raised the bonus tiers. And for a while, I was able to still increase production and hit it. And then they just kept raising it until it was unattainable. God never calls us to anything that is unattainable. God gives us the capacity to do what he has called us to do. And so as we re if we reject God, if we live in disobedience to what he's called us to, we not only reject him, but we reject the fact that he's given us the ability to do what he's called us to do. He's given us everything we need to live as he's called us to live. Another observation is this, perhaps our last one for this morning, that we ought to live in such a way as to win the respect of non-Christians through our holy living. I want to express, I want to make sure we're clear on something. You're never going to live well enough or moral enough to win people to Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. There are people who wrongly take St. Francis's instruction to, uh, uh, you know, preach the gospel, whatever, whatever possible, and when necessary, use words. First of all, we don't even know that he really wrote that. Second, it's often taken out of context, right? He's not saying that somehow we're just going to live really good lives and people are going to see you and be like, wow, God must be real. Jesus must be Lord. I want, to, I want exactly what you have. I know we talk like that sometimes, but please, if you ever just live your life really well and people just fall at Jesus' feet, can you come tell me your secret? 
Because I've never experienced that in my life. I mean, maybe I'm just not good enough. I don't know. I can't do that. Well, thank God he doesn't call us to that either. However, we are called to live consistent with our message. We are called to live in a certain way, and by disregarding what the Lord says, and then somehow talking as if he's Lord, we're sending mixed messages. And there are so many people in this world who have nothing to do with Jesus, nothing to do with Christians, nothing to do with the church, because Christians say one thing and they live something different. And friends, we can't do that. In fact, Paul is challenging that very idea. 1 Thessalonians 4, 10 through 12, he says, And in fact, you do love all God's family through Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. I want to focus in here. There's a lot to digest, but I want us to see this. So that, verse 12, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. I think... Sometimes we get so involved in things that detract from the gospel. We talk to people in a way that detracts from the gospel. We say one thing and then live a way that detracts from the gospel. And we have completely undermined the very thing we need the world to hear and to respond to. We need to be people who proclaim the gospel. We need to be people who live the gospel. And those two things have to go together. Because you're not going to be moral enough for people to just somehow get the gospel through osmosis. And you're not going to win them to the truth of the gospel if the way you live does not cohere with it. And so, friends, it is important for us to live as we're walking through this process of sanctification, being set apart from sin, being set apart unto God, that we are intentional about this process, that we're transparent even about this process because we're going to fail. And we need to own up to it when we do and pray that the Lord sanctifies us. And we need to live in a way that's consistent with our message so that our daily lives may win the respect of outsiders. Because God loves them just as much as you. And the salvation that he offers in Jesus is not just available to us, but to them as well. And we shouldn't put stumbling blocks in the way. So I told you at the beginning that there are misrepresentations and we focus in on two of them when it comes to what does God expect God first what God has no expectations you're forgiven live however you want and I think Paul's words make it clear this is not the way it is you are forgiven if you have declared with your mouth Jesus is Lord if you have surrendered your heart if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead if he's your Lord you're saved and yet because of that he has expectations for how we live. We need to live holy lives. We, it is God's desire for us to be sanctified. And friends, I want to address the second misrepresentation as well. This misrepresentation that says that the better you do at meeting God's expectations, the more value you have, the more he'll love you, uh, the more he'll forgive you for the bad things of your past, the more blessings he'll pour on you. Can I tell you something? God does not love you this morning because you're great. He loves you this morning. That's it. 
There's nothing you could do to add to God's love for you. There's nothing you could do to add to the salvation offered to Jesus Christ. He's done it all for you because he loves you. And in light of that, we live lives of worship to him. We live lives that put him on display. We live lives consistent with the gospel. We live lives of obedience to him. We live lives that are set apart from sin so that we can be fully set apart unto him. This is an act of thanksgiving. This is a response to the gospel. We don't earn anything more through it, but we shouldn't need to have to earn something in order to do it. You know, there's a lot of things in life. If I do this, I get that, and so I'm enticed to do that. We need to get rid of that paradigm when it comes to our relationship to God. He already gives you everything. He already loves you. You're already his son or daughter. In light of that, let's live lives that honor our Father. Thank you.